Hey everybody, today's episode of Shoppernomics is brought to you by Decision Breakers, experts in behavior-based shopper strategy, insights, and activation. Visit www.decisionbreakers.com to learn more and see how they can help you win the war in store. Welcome to Shoppernomics, the podcast for marketing and insight professionals who want to stay current on the latest understanding of consumer behavior and decision-making. My name is Phil McGee, and today I'm speaking with Norbert Schwartz, Provost Professor of Psychology and Marketing at the University of Southern California, where he conducts research on how people make sense of the world in which they live and how their decisions are shaped by subtle contextual influences. Today we'll be discussing a paper called Asking Questions About Behavior, Cognition, Communication, and Questionnaire Construction, where Robert and his colleague address concerns about self-report questionnaires and their ability to accurately capture behavior. As we all know, self-reports are highly context-dependent, with even minor changes in question wording and format and question sequence, among other things, having a profound effect on how respondents answer them. So knowing how to ask questions is important if we want to receive quality responses. In his paper, Norbert alerts researchers to what can go wrong and provides theoretically grounded recommendations for designing and testing questionnaires that minimize unattended survey bias. So before we begin, Norbert, welcome to Shoppernomics. Thank you, Phil. It's a pleasure being with you. And it's our pleasure to have you here. Uh, Norbert, I gave a quick summary of your bio up front, but would you mind building on my introduction just to tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure. I uh, am a psychologist. Initially, I was trained in sociology and political science in an interdisciplinary social science program at the University of Mannheim in Germany. After that, I was on the faculty of the University of Heidelberg in Germany. And I was scientific director of a survey research center in Germany before I moved to the University of Michigan in uh, the early 1990s, where I joined the psychology department and the Institute for Social Research. And I've been there for a long time until I moved to the University of Southern California, escaping the Michigan winters in uh, no, about five years ago. And I'm now working at the interface of psychology, consumer behavior, and public opinion. And I'm interested in how the immediate context in which we are shapes how we think and what we do and what we help people when they ask us questions. Is a lot of your time and attention focused on uh, conducting research as opposed to lectures? Uh, yes. I mean, most of what I do is research. Uh, most of my time is spent in research. I typically teach one doctoral class a year and one undergraduate class a year. So my appointment is primarily a research appointment. Terrific. Well, I'm glad because uh, your research contributions have, have really been noteworthy. Um, and, and this paper caught my attention because it's, it's really something every researcher needs to know. I mean, we all have opinions on how to draft questionnaires, what scales to use, and in what order to arrange questions. But to paraphrase my former boot camp drill instructor, opinions are like armpits. We all have them and they all stink. And your paper does a great job separating opinions people may have from sound principle-based questionnaire design. 
So, um, so to begin, I'm, I'm curious, just, you know, given your background and, and what you do, what inspired you to take on this topic? Well, that goes back a long time. Uh, when I was in graduate school at the University of Mannheim in Germany, uh, there was an interesting contrast. So in the social sciences, in my sociology, political science lectures and readings, the answers that people gave in surveys were basically taken at face value. What we know about society is to a large extent based on what people say in surveys. Even the national unemployment rate is estimated based on survey responses. It is not otherwise reported. So a lot of the supposedly hard facts are eventually survey responses. At the same time, survey researchers knew for a long time uh, that uh, these answers are not always that meaningful. Minor changes in question wording can make a big difference. Uh, minor changes in the response alternatives can make a big difference, and so on. For a long time, those observations were discounted. They're uncomfortable. We don't really know what to do with them. Mm -hmm. And they were treated as little anomalies. And in the early 80s, Howard Schumann and Stanley Presser, who both at that time were at the University of Michigan, came out with a book called Questions and Answers in Attitude Surveys, hmm. in which they basically documented a huge amount of these anomalies and showed that they are pretty regular. Uh, but they didn't have an explanation for it. They didn't have a theory. They showed that this stuff can make a difference, mm -hmm. and sometimes the difference is large. And in this interdisciplinary program, there was also a psychology track. And in the psychology track, the approach was very different. There, the idea was that how people think about things is very much sensitive to how you ask and who they talk to and what they're doing and what the goal is and so on. Yeah. Even how we understand language responds to that. And so I got interested in how these things fit together and developed a research program that applies psychological theorizing about communication, cognition, judgment, to these issues that survey researchers confront. But that was uh, a long time ago. We had a few initial conferences that we organized in the early 80s. And by the mid-90s, there was an established interdisciplinary field called uh, Cognitive Aspects of Survey Methods, sometimes under the acronym CASM, E-A-S-M. And uh, that is now part of doctoral training in survey methodology and social science research. There are cognitive psychology laboratories at many of the major survey institutions. The U.S. Census Bureau has a cognitive laboratory and has psychologists uh, on the staff and so on. So these things are now established, but you know, 30 years ago it was a bit of a of a obnoxious way of poking around. <laughs> for all those reasons, and and for the point I made earlier about it's it's something you know those of us who who construct surveys really need to understand the limitations of uh, of of what they can do, and and the pitfalls that we can you know find ourselves in, but. But the problem is you don't really know because it's not like we we have control questionnaires against you know each questionnaire that we do, so we don't recognize when we're getting good quality and when we're not um, in the responses. So yep. it's it's great when someone yep. like yourselves, uh, someone like yourself, does the work to highlight where things can go wrong um, and and suggest 
you know, principles that can help us do things right. But now to that point, if you don't mind me saying, one of the things I found disappointing about the paper, uh, which you acknowledge might be disappointing to some readers, is that there is no recipe for a perfectly constructed questionnaire. Um, and I'm wondering, why isn't there? Or, or shall I say, why can't there be? Yeah, look, I mean, recipes allow you to cook one particular thing really well over and over again. Mm -hmm. And if you're willing to ask the same question in the same context over and over again, then you can have a recipe for that one question. But if you want to know how things uh, change, what happens when your context changes, when your wonderful question shows up after other questions that you haven't asked before, then you need to think about the specifics and that is a regular situation. You will have a question that you ask repeatedly, but it will always show up in a different historical context, in a different questionnaire context, after you did other things than you did last time. And so each time you have to think through the process and through the specifics, and your wonderful recipe won't work. A recipe is a thing that you do to do it over and over and over again. And, and that's really what you do. Understood. And, and the importance of context is a reoccurring theme on, on this podcast, uh, as well as, you know, all the books and papers that I read. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it, it's, 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 it's an important point that you're making that, uh, you know, once again, um, in this context, context is important. Okay. Look, so- I mean, to give you, to give you uh, just one example that you may never, that you may never think of. Yeah. Uh, respondents are trying to be really cooperative and to figure out what you want to know and what is of interest to you. Sure. That also means that they take into account who you are and what you do. So we've done a study which is not a marketing, not a behavior, not a consumer behavior study, but it's relevant in, in illustrating what we typically would not pay attention to. Mm-hmm. Uh, we gave people a little clip from the New York Times about a case of violence. It's the postal employee who gets fired from his job. A few days later, he comes back with a gun and he kills some of his colleagues and his boss. And it's a real newspaper clipping. Mm-hmm. And we ask people to explain what happened, why did it happen. Yeah. And then we look at how they explain why it happened. And the only thing that we change is the letterhead on the cover letter. And that cover letter comes in one condition from the Institute for Personality Research and in the other condition from the Institute for Social Research. And when people believe that this is a personality researcher asking them, why did this happen? The answers are mostly about that guy who did it. So what kind of a person is he? That's supposedly what a personality researcher is interested in. Mm-hmm. And they're saying very little about gun laws, they're saying very little about workplace conditions, they're saying very little about organization. But if you say, if it's on the letterhead of the Institute for Social Research, that's a much wider thing. And the social researcher could be interested in all kinds of stuff. And now they're talking about the work conditions, about the availability of guns, and so on and much less about the individual person, which literally means, even though we give you the same clicking, we ask you literally the same question. Nothing has been changed in the questionnaire other than the letterhead. People 
take the letterhead into account in figuring out what is of interest to you and to take that into account in being cooperative respondents who help you provide the information that you actually are interested in. That's, that's an extraordinary example um, because that really has nothing to do with the questionnaire itself, but rather, yeah. um, you know, kind of this additional supplemental information that, that we just don't give thought to. Um, so, so I love yeah. that example because you're really showing um, how influence can find its way in. Um, even when we try our best to do great questionnaires, there may be, you know, some surrounding uh, influence that, that we don't even take into consideration. So I love that. So let's, um, so I want to climb into some of the details of your paper. You state that respondents take five steps when completing basically any question. And, and each of the steps has its own set of potential pitfalls. So, so the five steps, you know, the first they have to understand the question, you know, after they read it or hear it. Then they have to recall relevant behaviors that pertain to the question. Um, then they will mm -hmm. adopt an estimation strategy to arrive at a meaningful estimate of the behavior. Um, then they're going to map their answer onto the response format that's given to them. And then finally, as they do all of this, they'll often edit their answer for reasons of social desirability. So, so what I'd mm -hmm. like to do, Norbert, is to talk about each of these steps uh, one at a time. And, uh, and, and so, sure. again, the first one is that respondents have to understand the question. And by that, you mean not just the literal meaning, but also the pragmatic meaning. Can you explain, um, you know, what, what we need to know about even just understanding the question. Yeah. So suppose I ask you a very simple thing. What have you done today? You clearly understand the words, as long as I'm concerned about literal meaning, what the textbook tells you. Do not use big words. Do not make complicated sentences. Keep your questions short. All of that stuff. Surely I have done. What have you done today? Except that you have no idea what you should tell me. Should you include that you took a shower? Should you tell me that you tied your shoes? Should you tell me that you got dressed? I mean, obviously you wouldn't tell me that because it would seem that it's not worth saying. It's stuff that goes without saying. But on the other hand, if I gave you a closed question format that has a list of stuff and I say, what have you done today? Please check all that apply you surely would check that you, you know, got dressed and you tied your shoes and, and so on. Uh, you would say that, you would check that because A, it's true, and B, you would now believe that I'm somehow interested in that. If you were severely disabled, and I said this is a survey about, you know, difficulties of making, of completing daily actions, what have you done today? You may also include all of that, because in that context, you may think that it's relevant. So the distinction here is the, the literal meaning of the question. What have you done today? It's kind of easy to understand. But what the questioner wants to know, that's the pragmatic meaning of the question. Mm. What the questioner wants to know is what you have to infer. What is the useful information? What does that guy actually want to know? In normal conversations, we are encouraged to say things that are worth saying and to not say things that go without saying anyway. 
And survey respondents bring all of these assumptions to the survey, and they act in the survey as they would act as cooperative communicators in a daily conversation. But in the surveys, that is often difficult uh, because we're not really filling in all that detail, and we're leaving it to the respondent to say, well, what does this guy really want to say? Mm. The example I gave you a minute ago about the Institute for Psychological Research versus Social Research is the same theme, right? Mm -hmm. What is this guy interested in? What is the pragmatic meaning mm. of the question? Why did he do it? I mean, is this about the person or is this about the social context of the organization or policy? Um, that kind of contextual information influences the pragmatic interpretation that means what is the information that I should provide? So, so is it just a matter of being clearer on how you frame the question or, or you know, what can researchers do to overcome this concern? Being clear when asking the question usually does not do that. What researchers have to do is look at, the, at how they introduce themselves, what their affiliation is, what else they say about the purpose of the study, mm -hmm. um, and what people might infer from that. Mm. Most of the time, they will get it right, because most likely, if you are a psychologist, you are more interested in the person than in the policy. Uh, Etc. Right. So a yeah. lot of these influences do not really do any damage. But if you want people to interpret your question differently than they might if they look at you, then you have to be very explicit about this. So I mean, if a if a if a traffic cop stops you and asks you, "Can you read this?" Uh, you understand that it probably means something else than when your eye doctor says, "Can you read this?" <laughs> right. Right. But uh, uh, your survey respondent may not know whether you are a traffic cop or an eye doctor. Mm -hmm. and, and the context often provides that. Yet, surprisingly, researchers are often unaware that their context does. Yeah. And I've, seen, I've seen surveys where people go at great lengths disguising that they're interested in criminal behavior, right. behavior, right. except that stupidly, Stupidly, the letter of introduction says Institute of Criminology. <laughs> well, you know, I've, um, I've often heard it said that good research means never having the respondent know what is being studied. Is that in agreement with or does that contradict what you're suggesting? Uh, both. Okay. Oh, I mean, at some, at some level, uh, I mean, it depends on your study, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you may want to know things that, you, that people might not want to tell you. Sure. Or that when I make you aware of that, uh, uh, it may, you may actually stumble over it and hesitate and say, oh, gee, it may be right, but I don't find it good. Yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, that really depends on, on, uh, on what you study. But you have to think about what is a frame of mind that I want people to be in when mm. they think of that. And you have to make sure that that frame of mind is established by the way you introduce uh, your study and the survey and, and what you say you are and so on. And if what you're studying seems odd given your letterhead, then you have to say a few words about yes. that. Yes, yeah. Right? Uh, I mean, much like you introduced your, your podcast by 
setting a context. You have to do that in your study as well. And uh, sometimes, in particular in, in psychology, we study things that we wouldn't want to tell you. Right. I'm currently studying uh, the influence of suspicion on reasoning processes. And we can't tell people in advance, <laughs> oh, you know, they're studying suspicion. They're going to make you suspicious now. <laughs> I mean, that's what the purpose. <laughs> uh, okay, so that's great. That, that actually makes a lot of sense. So, um, so making sure that they understand the question, it's not ambiguous. Um, they're not going to have one you know, frame of mind uh, when, when you want them to be in a different frame, frame of mind. That, that's, that makes yeah. perfect sense. All right. So then the second step is, is that the respondent has to recall relevant behavior. What are some of the issues here? Well, I mean, the primary issue is, of course, that people forget. Hmm. And much of your daily life leaves actually very little trace. So that's the case because similar activities blend into one generic representation. So you know exactly what, what happens on your computer. Uh, but you can't really tell me what happened on your commute three days unless it was very unusual. Mm -hmm. Because by and large, each episode of commuting blends into the next one. And so you have very detailed knowledge in general about your commute, but you can't tell one episode from the other. Mm -hmm. uh, if you go to the same cafeteria at the company where you work almost every day, you know exactly what's going on in the cafeteria, but you'll have a hard time telling me what you ate yet. Sure. And, uh, but if yesterday you were at, the, at a fancy restaurant that you only go to once a year, uh, you would know exactly what you have. And uh, that's typical for, for the problems that we have to recall. So we can recall things that stand out, that are unusual, that are uh, in some way uh, Exceptional, uh, provided that they haven't happened too far back. Uh, we have a very hard time recalling things that are very frequent, mm -hmm. uh, and we don't have that experience that we find it difficult because we know everything about it. We can talk a lot of details, but the details may not be what you actually did. So when I ask you what you usually do in the supermarket, you will know. When I want to know what you bought yesterday, you may have a very hard time. Mm. And in most cases, we're not interested in what you usually do because we want estimates for a particular time frame. We want estimates for a particular time of day or yes. other such things. And isolating that is very, very hard for people, even when they have very detailed general knowledge about the activity in, in, as, a, as a general category. Okay. So I imagine a, a lot of listeners need to understand behaviors in very unremarkable um, or routine situations when shoppers, you know, may not be, you know, giving much thought or attention to the little details that a researcher, you know, may be very interested in. Even the big details, uh, depending on how routine it might be, like, you know, to use your example of commuting um, every day. Um, so how might researchers help respondents to more easily and accurately recall behavior and if if you know unremarkable behaviors uh, or unremarkable contexts um are, are of interest well one of your best bets would be to try to figure out 
to try to help people to remember what may have been specific and particular about that day. Okay. So if I asked you, what did you do two days ago? Was there anything particular about your day? Uh, anything special on the commute? Anything, no, et cetera. So that you can slowly reinstantiate uh, some episodic traces of what you did two days ago. Mm -hmm. uh, that would help you making adjustments. You might realize, for example, that in fact there was a bad traffic jam, and as a result of that, uh, you had to go straight from the parking lot to your office, and you couldn't do your usual stop. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But otherwise, you might tell me the usual thing: that yes. you drive to the parking structure, you go to Starbucks, and then you take your coffee to your office. Mm. Uh, which would be correct most of the time. Uh, but if I want to know what you actually did on Thursday, that may have been wrong. Yes. So, so ground them in the specifics and don't give them an opportunity to default to the, um, the, kind of the generalization. Yeah, I mean, help them remember uh, what may have been, uh, I mean, what may have been uh, particular about that. Mm -hmm. As much context as they can get. Uh, uh, the better the answer will be. Got it. Okay. In, in that, that also makes a lot of sense. Okay. So now they, they understand the question. They've recalled the relevant behavior and, and now they need to estimate the frequency of the behavior. Um, so that sounds very simple, uh, but of course it's not, <laughs> as, as you will tell us. Uh, what are the challenges here when it comes to estimation? Well, the challenges with estimation are again, that you're not keeping a regular behavior count. Mm -hmm. uh, so if I ask, no, if, if your behaviors are very regular, uh, then you do not need to recall very much. So if you go to church every Sunday or if you brush your teeth every morning and every evening, I can ask you how often you did that last week or yesterday or and you look at what day of the week it was or and so on and, and you can figure it out. Okay. There is in many ways, not much recall needed because it knows the regularity. Right. Uh, if you do that, however, you end up making specific mistakes. Maybe last Sunday was the Sunday when you had a cold and you didn't go to church. Or uh, maybe you uh, were too tired to brush your teeth. Or who knows, right? right. right. Uh, you give me the answers that is rate-based and I'm capturing your usual behavior, but not the exception. And uh, if that's what you want, then you're usually fine. Uh, now assume that your behavior is that the behavior you're interested in is not mundane and regular, but something that's really rare and important. Uh, then, I mean, people will be able to remember that, and there's no problem. So, if you ask people how often they have been married or how often they have been divorced, they will usually know. There's no, there's no memory <laughs> there. Yes, uh, and. Uh, if you ask for you know, wonderful restaurants, they will remember those too. The real problems are always either mundane and frequent things. Mm -hmm. And as I just said, if it's regular, you can estimate that based on a rate, what you know about your, your, your usual behavior. Right. If it's not regular, then you have to recall a few examples and think about what that means. And uh, so if I ask you, how often did you, do, uh, did you go shopping last week? Uh, you may not know how often you went shopping last week, but right. you may say, well, I usually go to the supermarket twice, but last week was kind of busy, so maybe I was only once. And you basically make an inference that is a mix 
of knowing a little bit about your usual routines and a little bit about exceptions that may or may not have happened last week mm-hmm. and you're making plausible income. And that's the best we can often hope for. It's a plausible reconstruction of what I probably must have done given what I know about it. Mm. I, I know that a strategy that um, that I've used and I'm sure others use is, you know, if if I needed to know how many times somebody drank orange juice over the past year, just to make up an example, um, I might ask how many times they had orange juice in the past week and then make an assumption that, you know, their weekly behavior is consistent throughout the year. So I just multiply that by 52. Now, of course, that's not a perfect way to do it either because, you know, they've gone vacation one week and, and they changed the routine. Or maybe they drink yeah. tomato juice for the first six months and then switch to orange juice. You know, it, that has its own set of imperfections yeah. as well. And and to, to drink more orange juice in summers than in winter. Exactly. If, if you are willing to live with such an estimate, uh, uh, then there's no problem. I mean, if you ask people what they usually do, they can usually give you some kind of a rate estimate that is this in the ballpark, but it's not going to be accurate. Right, right. So is, is there anything that you might recommend doing, such as you know, choosing a, a shorter time period or, or a more recent time period and then you know, making some assumptions about you know, the, the well, extent to I which mean, that applies I, globally? Yeah, I, I would actually discourage you from even trying to calculate the annual consumption. Hmm. I, I mean, I, I think, uh, uh, no. In most cases, there are seasonal variations, and it doesn't make that much sense to just extrapolate in that way. Right. If you're interested in an accurate behavioral report, it's always good to go for a recent and short reference period. Okay. Have you, did you drink any orange juice today? <laughs> it's probably <laughs> something on which you can get a fact-based answer. Right. Uh, once you say... Uh, did you drink any orange juice this week? You're already having a problem with what is actually this week. Mm. If you're asking me on Tuesday, is that since Sunday? Right. Is that since last Tuesday? Right. Uh, I would give you very different answers if you're talking since last Tuesday or if you're talking since Sunday. Right. 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 Um, so you run into all kinds of, of issues about that. Yet, nevertheless, people ask questions that say last week without ever saying what the week was. And they run their interviews through the whole week. And uh, they're asking the last week question on Monday as well as Friday. So I, I think uh, what you're saying is, is, a, is consistent with the point you made earlier, which is don't assume they know what you're wanting. <laughs> be very clear yes. on, on, on what you're looking for. All yeah. right. Be, right. be very clear on what you're looking for. Let, let me let me add a word on another on another one that you will often oh, that you will often uh, see. Um, so I, I just said, uh, you know, one to improve recall is to go for a shorter reference period. So you ask about today or about yesterday or some some reference period that I can probably remember. Yeah, and that needs to be tailored for the behavior. So the more mundane the behavior is the shortest the reference period should be. Mm. Uh, the more relevant and remarkable the behavior is, the longer the reference period can be because it's more memorable. Sure. 
And uh, there's uh, another catch, however. Uh, you can also get better memory, but looks like better memory, but that's often misleading, by breaking down the behavior into shorter periods, just like I've now poked down the reference period. Okay. So instead of saying, how often did you eat out? I can say, how often did you eat out for lunch? How often did you eat out mm. for breakfast? How often did you eat out for dinner? Uh, which on the one hand gives you better recall skills, on the other hand makes many shorter categories. Uh, or I can ask you, how often did you eat at an Italian restaurant, at a Mexican restaurant, at an Indian mm. restaurant? Do the long list. It turns out that a simple regularity. Uh, people overestimate the frequency of small categories, like Italian restaurants, Indian restaurants, and they underestimate the frequency associated with large categories, like eating out. So high frequencies are underestimated, low frequencies are overestimated. And what you get as a result is this. When I ask one group, how often did you eat out last week? And I asked the other group, how often did you eat out for breakfast, for lunch, for dinner? And the third group, how often did you eat at an Italian restaurant, mm -hmm. an Indian restaurant, and so on? And I add these things up. I arrive at dramatically different things. <laughs> I, um, I, I anticipated that would be the result. Right? Uh, exactly. Yeah. And many people operate, many researchers operate on the assumption that people forget so more is better. Right. The higher the frequencies, the better. That turns out not to be the case. Uh, we did a study, which is not, a, not an eating study. We did a study on phone calls uh, where we asked university employees to report how many phone calls they made uh, during the previous two weeks. Mm -hmm. And uh, we broke them down in, in some conditions, like phone calls to the East Coast and to the West Coast and to the Midwest. Or we broke them down in major cities. And uh, we get what you always get. When we ask you how many phone calls you, you made last the last two weeks, there's a lower estimates than when we say to the East Coast, to the West Coast, to the Midwest. And the highest number is when we ask you about, this, about 12 different cities, because you're overestimating a little bit each city. Right. And then we go back and we simply look at the telephone record of the institution and we can tell uh, if people did or did not make these long distance calls from their office. Um, and it turns out uh, that the best estimates were for these median breakdowns when they asked about the region. Uh, so they underestimated relative to record the uh, general question how many phone calls they made then uh, elevating the estimates a little bit by a breakdown into three categories was getting a little closer to the actual record and breaking it down into 12 small categories produced a huge overestimate. So very clearly, more is not better. And even where we were closer to the sum, according to the record, uh, the composition of that sum was not representing the record. So they're giving... They get similar estimates for East Coast, West Coast, and Midwest, even when the actual frequency in these categories is better. Mm. So, so I mean, that's a great principle. Don't go too broad or too narrow. Um, but how do you know that by going somewhere in between, it's actually a better answer? I mean, I understand that when you go too broad, then you get smaller numbers than when you, you know, you get very specific. Yeah. You'll you'll get 
a greater number of, of an estimate. Um, and, and if you do somewhere in the middle, then you'll get a, you know, a number somewhere in the middle. Yeah. How do you know that number somewhere in the middle is actually closer to the, to the right number or, or, or don't we know? Well, um, I mean, we, we don't know. That's why I said I can give you a recipe for any specific question. So if you want <laughs> right. me to design, if you want me to design the ideal telephone question, I can pretest that thing and work that thing in various ways until it maps nicely onto the record in two rounds. And I can say, well, this is relatively good as a match on record. So for the telephone thing, for that kind of an institution, that breakdown may work. But that doesn't mean that the three had a breakdown of three is now your ideal thing for shopping behavior. Right. You literally right. have to do the work. Right. So you can optimize your question. And if it's a question that you're going to use a lot, then it may be worth it that you want to experiment, you do the record check, you do a check against the credit card statement or some other such thing. And you can optimize that question. But that doesn't necessarily mean uh, that the same breakdown travels to other areas. Right. Uh, it just means that you have discovered a principle, but that principle needs to be applied and thought through and tested. And, and that's not a recipe, that's an insight that needs work. Fair enough. Fair enough. And, and of course, another point we didn't necessarily talk about is, um, you know, if you have the luxury of time, then especially for seasonal behaviors, like, you know, how often do you eat soup? Um, you're going to want to ask that at varying parts of the year because taking a, a narrow time frame and then mathematically deriving an annual consumption behavior um, is, is just going to completely be inaccurate, um, you know, because if you ask in the summer, then you're going to have a, 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 a gross underestimation. And if you ask in the yeah. winter, you'll have a gross yeah. overestimation. Yeah. And, and on top of that, you get seasonal variation. Yes. Right? Yep. I mean, now, I mean, it's November and surely the soup consumption on the East Coast has gone up. Uh, the soup consumption in Southern California has not. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so, so, so that um, step is, is about the question. I think the next step is more about the responses. Um, and, because now they have their estimate and they've got to map that estimate um, to the scale that's included in the questionnaire. Um, so tell us about the types of problems that can occur here in this, this mapping step. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, uh, uh, the influence of the scale begins early. Your respondent who now sits there and thinks that, oh my, how often, has a much easier way than recalling all of that. Mm -hmm. uh, in many, many cases, the researcher provides a numeric numeric uh, frequency scale. So it's something like, how often have you done that? Uh, never less than five times, six to 10 times, 11 to 15 times, or some other such thing. And it turns out people have a reasonable sense, they believe, uh, whether they are doing something more or less often than most people, which is kind of their relative placement. Mm -hmm. They have a better sense of that than they have a sense of how often they actually do it. And in addition to that, they give you as a researcher too much credit. They actually <laughs> believe that you know what you're doing, which is not quite the case. Right. And they think that we have constructed a meaningful scale. So if I come with a scale that goes somewhere from less than five to more than 20, 
uh, most people assume that this is the usual range of the behavior. So, you know, less than five is about the low end of this, and more than 20 is probably rare. The average person is probably somewhere in the middle of the scale. They're acting as if they're basically mentally drawing a bell curve across your scale. And they say, well, so, so most people are somewhere in the middle range of the scale. That's where the mean is. And the extremes of the scale are the extremes of the distribution, and there's few people there. And then they assume that they are about average, they tend to go towards the middle of the scale. Mm -hmm. And then they think they're doing this more than others, they go higher on that scale. And uh, they're essentially using the frequencies, the frequency range of the scale that you as a researcher provide right. as a frame of reference for estimating their own behavioral frequency. Right. And that results on higher reports when you give a high-frequency scale than when you give a low-frequency scale. Sure. So we have, we have done experiments with that where we construct scales that overlap so that we can compare that. And we find, for example, differences uh, depending on, where we, on, on the range of the scale where less than 16% uh, of people report watching television for a certain amount of time when the scale is a low scale. And more than 38% report watching television for that time when the scale has a high frequency. Right. We also get the same stuff on uh, physical symptoms, frequency of headaches, how many headache pills you have taken, and so on. So people do not know what they're actually, actually doing. They have some sense that they're having more headaches than a lot of their friends or less headaches. And then to use your scale and that general knowledge to make an influence, what that frequency must be. Let's say you're asking somebody how much money they contributed to charity last year to give them options, um, you know, less than $50, uh, 50 to $100, etc. Let's say you gave them five different options of increasing values um, and then asking them to pick one. Um, or just make it open-ended, you know, let them fill in the box of a dollar amount that they gave last year, and then you can categorize it any way you want on the back end. Is, is that one way of overcoming this? Uh, yes. I mean, I would recommend using an open format, mm -hmm. uh, but you have to be really careful that your open format specifies the unit in which you want that. <laughs> yes. Or else they say a lot. Yes. Thousands. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, so you have to say how many dollars. And if it's a self-administered questionnaire, an online questionnaire, uh, you want the dollar in that answer space that they fill, yes. that they fill in. Right. Uh, so same with frequency. And you have to specify the, the, the frequency. You have to say how many times a week. And your response thing has to be uh, blank time a week. Right. So yeah. otherwise, you're getting a lot of non-comparable stuff. Right. Now, when you do that, when you do that, let me repeat: you have no guarantees that the answers are accurate. All you have done is you have avoided the systematic influence of the scale. Yes. Right. Yeah. The systematic avoiding the systematic influence of the scale is worth it uh, because what your scale does is that it reduces 
the spread in the distributions that you're getting. So suppose you're having a group who does something very often, and you're having another group who does it relatively little, and you're giving them the same space. They're both using now the same framework preference for making their estimates. And the high group will go to the higher end of that scale, and the low group will go to the lower end of your scale. But you will be pulling both of them closer together than you would without the scale, because they're operating within the frame of preference yes. set up by your scale. Yes. And so you're reducing differences between groups. You're missing outliers. And you also see you also see how powerful that is. Uh, you know, your, your donation question reminded me of that. You see how powerful these effects are uh, by the sheer fact that every donor organization tries to give you uh, a suggestion of how much you should give <laughs> yes. by having a range sitting there that is tailored, actually, by what they know about you or your household when it's made to you. Mm -hmm. Right? So, I mean, uh, you're getting higher suggested donations. I mean, a higher, in a sense, frequency scale where you check off dollar scale, where you check off what you're giving in high-income uh, zip codes and in low-income zip codes. And most people try to do something that doesn't look too shabby within the scale that they're given. Yes. So nobody really expects that you're checking the thousand at the end. But, every, but nobody also expects that you're writing in other and you're giving $5. Well, these are clever marketers who are taking this anchoring effect and and turning it turning it into a marketing opportunity. You know, everyone's favorite yeah, example absolutely. is the you know the taxi cab, where you know at the end you're paying your fare, and it gives you three options, um, recommend you know suggestions yeah. for how you could tip the operator. You've got twenty, twenty five, and thirty percent. <laughs> when normally you would pay none of those things, you'd give them you know ten percent maybe. But uh, yeah, yeah. but you know it, it 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 certainly increases the average tip quantity, and that's been substantiated. Um, we want to do the exact opposite of that. We want to discourage people from from uh, being led into certain response options just because of the scale that we provided them. Exactly. Yeah. And um, and so those last two examples of of the cab and the um, and, and the charitable donations. Uh, really tie into the last step, uh, which you say respondents may edit their responses. And, and it was interesting, you put the word edit in quotes. Um, curious why you did that. Yeah, I, 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 uh, I mean, we, we, there was no particular reason. Really. Oh, okay. I mean, the, the, reason why, the reason why we did that is that this step has typically been conflated in, in the writing about survey methods. Uh, with, with doing a response. Mm -hmm. And so we have set this apart as a separate thing. And we didn't want to call it social desirability because that can also play a, a role in question comprehension and so on. Sure. And so we introduced this term as, as editing the response before you publicly report it to the, to the researcher. But, you're, but I think one of your larger points on this one is that that effective social yes. desirability, right? And so, yes, uh, uh, yes. I, I mean, let me let let me be, be clear. Yeah. Um, so there is a separate step that is conceptually different from your recall and your estimation, mm -hmm. and uh, that may that is becoming really salient to you as a respondent when 
and you now have to tell the interviewer on the phone line that, uh, yes, you did that nasty thing five times last month. And you may hesitate to say that. Mm-hmm. And so even so you arrived at that estimate and it may or may not be a correct estimate, you may now not want to say that and right. you say, no, I don't do that. Right. Uh, right. And, and that's different from all the other from all the other problems. And it is something that only occurs at the end. Uh, but that people do not report uh, some behaviors as much as they should, let's say, based on, uh, on, on other data that you, that you have, uh, doesn't necessarily mean that it's social desirability. It could yeah. be due to all the other steps before. So over-reporting of good behavior and under-reporting of mm. bad behavior can occur at any one of these stages. Mm-hmm. My bad behavior can be more memorable. My good behavior can be less memorable, or vice versa, uh, etc. So there's no evidence that every case of under-reporting or over-reporting is really due to social desirability, rather than to memory errors, to misinterpretations of the questions, and so on. That's a really good point, um, and, and, and ties all these steps together very nicely. Um, out of curiosity, are there strategies that you've used or are aware of that can help minimize respondent tendencies to offer socially desirable answers? Yes, and there well, are well established, and there's nothing very surprising about it. Uh, so survey methodologists have shown for many years that the more you can make the questions, the question situations, the interview situation, anonymous and confidential, hmm. uh, the more likely you are to get socially undesirable behaviors. So socially undesirable behaviors are more likely to be reported and socially desirable behaviors less likely to be over-reported uh, when you do the interview on the telephone than when you do it face-to-face. And when you move to a written questionnaire that has no markings on it and goes in an envelope, then that's even better than the telephone. And when you do it on the computer, which feels particularly anonymous, that's even better. Then you make sure in the telephone interview that the respondent is alone and that no household member is there, uh, that's better. When you remind the respondent that only they can hear the question, and even so their spouse may hear the answer, <laughs> the spouse may not know what the answer pertains to. Right. Uh, that also increases uh, no, responses that you may not want to tell yourself. So uh, all of these things, all of these things work. I, I wonder if um, you know we're we're more and more aware of the fact that our digital footprints are permanent and not temporary, and and even though we are often given promises of anonymity. Um, there's always the underlying suspicion that, um, well, yeah, but, but somebody could find it if they really wanted to. Um, you know, if I, if I talk about how much alcohol I consume, you know, how do I know this isn't going to find its way to, uh, my healthcare insurance provider? Um, and, and, and I wonder if that's, I mean, this is kind of an unfair question because I'm, I I can't imagine you know the answer, but I just, uh, maybe fun to speculate. I wonder how, uh, to, the, to the extent that that type of um, 
concern is is growing or has been growing over time just as we see uh, you know database uh, hacks and um, personalized marketing that's like wow these you know somehow the world knows a lot more about me than than I want it to um, so maybe I need to be more protective over my my information and the extent that this may be contributing to people giving social desirable answers versus um, having trust in the system that when, when you tell me I can be completely honest, then, then I can. Yeah, I, I think that's quite likely. Uh, for all we know, the biggest effect that all of these concerns have is on response rates. Hmm. So the response rates for representative survey are way down. And what used to be the gold standard for good academic survey a response rate around 75% is something you can hardly dream of. Wow. Days. Oh, my gosh. Right. Uh, so uh, in, in the commercial world, of course, many, many institutes hardly talk about their response rate. <laughs> they cut right. it. Right. And, yeah. uh, but, I mean, for high-end surveys where you do, like, 10 callbacks and you really try to track people down oh, yeah. and so on, it is still uh, very difficult to get beyond the low 60s. And uh, I, I think hesitation about privacy has a lot to do with non-response. Sure. Uh, more than with agreeing that I will respond and then I, I'm not going to give you some answers. Uh, but then on surveys that you may feel that you have to do, like surveys that are associated with the employer, then definitely social desirability and editing will be a big thing. Right. Because now you feel obliged to respond, but you don't really have to share uh, everything. Correct. Uh, right. And that contrasts wildly uh, with the behavior of the same people who are very hesitant about what they say, uh, but happily uh, you know, have their cell phone on all the time and have a Google track where they are because <laughs> they want the GPS service and uh, post all kinds of things on Facebook sure. and so on, right? Yeah. So, I, I mean, this behavior is highly inconsistent and uh, it seems to be uh, only influencing what you do. These concerns seem to only influence what you do when they come to mind at that moment, which is more likely when a stranger calls you and asks you stuff than when you're engaged in your routine behavior. Sure. I mean, where there's a perceived benefit of, of contributing, then people are, are motivated to do so. And when there is a perceived cost of doing so, then obviously they're not. Yeah. Um, so that was helpful to walk through those five steps. And, and, what, and, and I liked how you actually structured your paper by those five steps. And, and certainly there's a lot more content than, than we'd have time to talk about. But what I also liked is that at the end of your paper, you gave several suggestions for for how to improve questionnaire design. Um, and I particularly liked how you suggested that researchers take the time to complete their own questionnaires. Um, in fact, on the client side, you know, many of us outsource questionnaire design to external agencies. And because we're busy, um, it could be tempting to trust these agencies' expertise and, and just use what they provide. Now, I, I know that's not you know, the, the most prominent behavior, but you know, like I said, it could be tempting. Um, but personally, I've had many experiences where by taking the survey myself, I was able to identify and correct survey bias very easily. Um, and taking the survey is very different than just proofreading the questionnaire. W would you agree? No, absolutely. I mean, if you just read over the questionnaire, the question seems just fine. 
and, and you don't notice it. Uh, you really have to sit down and answer the questions. And if you cannot answer your own questions, then I promise you, your responses cannot be. <laughs> Good point. That's, that's a great, great test. <laughs> this, is, this is very simple. And it's very surprising how often researchers cannot answer their own questions. Yeah. Uh, so it seems to be you know, um, not too much to ask for that you remember this. Uh, but when you try, you realize it's pretty damn hard and you can't uh so that, that's an issue uh this is getting more complicated in my experience than you have what what i call questionnaire designed by committee mm -hmm. so there's a budget constraint uh and you can only ask x questions and there's many stakeholders around the table who all want to get a question on sure and uh, they can't all get a question on and so then there's a question that suddenly wins because it's kind of related to what one department wanted and kind of related to what the other department wanted. But it's not ideal for either department. Right. It's just you know, better than nothing, they believe. <laughs> uh, then the most global, most uninformative, and most open to interpretation question is a question that wins. And people don't notice how bad the question is because superficially it seems to be at least related to what I wanted to know. Right. Uh, but when you, have, when you have to answer it yourself, you, you often realize that you really don't know what you want to say or, or what this may mean. So forcing people to answer their questions is a very good thing. You should always do. Well, the other benefit is that you really can appreciate how much time you're asking of your respondents. Um, you know, I once took a survey that I knew was going to be long, but I had no idea it was going to take two hours to complete it. And, and I was <laughs> highly motivated to complete it. And I, it was torture. Um, obviously it, it wasn't designed to be two hours. There were some programming flaws, but, um, but even, you know, 10 minutes can feel like forever if, if it's, you know, not a very engaging survey. Um, and, and by taking it yourself, you know, no one is more motivated than you are. And if you find it annoying or difficult um, or uh, where you're tempted to give wrong answers, then you know that it's going to be exponentially um, as bad on, on, on people who aren't motivated to take your survey. That's correct. Yeah. That's, so, that's correct. And they have a good incentive to just click the end button and walk away. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, of course, you, you recommend uh, consulting models of good questions, um, good is also in quotes, um, to serve as examples when drafting your own questions. Um, but you also suggest pilot testing questions with cognitive interviewing techniques. Um, and, and I don't think you elaborated on what that really entails. Can, can you briefly explain? Sure. So there's a number of different, there's a number of different things that you can do. Um, and uh, the simplest one is that you, I mean, in all of these cases, as you design your questionnaire, you get a few people from your intended population okay. and you try out questions on them. Uh, in the standard field three test that survey organizations used to do, the traditional ones, you just ask the question and if people give you answers that seem plausible, then that's it. 
And you would never find out if there was much of a problem unless the answers were really absurd mm-hmm. or people complained. Right? right. But you can do better than that. The easiest thing to do is you ask the question and then you say, what do you think the guy who wrote that question wanted to know? Can you repeat the question in your own words? Uh, so they basically paraphrase the question. Yeah. You can have them answer the questions and vote them. Uh, you can do think aloud protocols. The response and think out loud while they're answering the question. Mm. Or one of the one of the uh, things that I find extremely underutilized is giving them different types of scenarios and say, suppose you are that person, what should you say? So, I mean, suppose, for example, uh, one of my favorite dissertations, old study by a, a British researcher on the name of Belton in the early 60s, who asked people uh, whether children older than the age of 12 should be allowed to see uh, Western Western movies. And um, then people say something, and then they say, so what children did you think of? And they think of anything from three-year-olds to 18-year-olds and so sure. on, right? Uh, and they completely ignore the time, uh, the, the age constraint in the question, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And you can catch those things, either receiving, or you can say, uh, imagine, you know, Mary watched this with her seven-year-old daughter. What should she have said, you know, and, and other, such, other such things, where you basically can check if respondents' understanding of your question maps onto what you think the question should say. Uh, do say you know, in the appropriate cases say no. She should say no. She's never done that. She should say yes. She has done that, right. and and so on. And you will often find that what seems to be quite clear to you is not at all clear to the So I really like that because um, you can do these things without having to take a lot of time or without a lot of cost. I mean, these are very simple things that you can yeah. that you can do, and just as a practical way to understand. Um, you know, how well people are understanding, you know, kind of the simple things of, of, of what you're just trying to get after. Really yeah. good. Really good. So you made many other suggestions at the end, but I thought your last suggestion, um, you know, to make sure that those conducting your interviews are trained to understand the meaning of your questions was particularly important. Um, you know, I mean, how many times have we witnessed a respondent asking the interviewer, what a question meant, and the interviewer didn't know anything more than the words on the paper. You know, I understand it's we first. don't want interviewers going rogue and, and not administering surveys in a um, in, in an inconsistent way, uh, but they should at least have the ability to clarify questions and response options when needed. Well, I, I mean, that's that's controversial. That's controversial. The standard textbook says that the respondent has to read the question as written and should not deviate from that. Right. So when the respondent says, I didn't understand this, the interviewer has to say, uh, let me read it again and then read it slowly again without mm-hmm. any change. And if the interviewer is caught of in changing the question, that's considered bad interviewer behavior. Right. And, and that used to be the standard practice and is at most very institutions still the standard practice. And when the respondent says, well, what do you mean with that? And then the interviewer 
has an option, which usually is to say whatever it means to you, sir, mm -hmm. which is absurd. Uh, there is no context in daily life where the questioner asks something. The person who is being asked says, oh, I don't know, what, what do you mean? <laughs> and the questioner says, whatever it means to you. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you say, can you tell me where the bus station is? And the guy says, uh, what do you mean? This bus station or that bus station? It's up to you to say <laughs> what information you need. Right. Not right, right. up to the answerer to define what information you need. Right. Right. Yet in the survey interview, we act as if the answerer decides what information the questioner wanted to collect. And, and that's, that's absurd. That is slowly changing, but not quickly changing. Right. It's easier to change that for factual questions. Like when I say last week, and the, uh, the response says, well, I mean, what do you mean with last week, since Sunday, or since, you know, whatever, last Tuesday, uh, then many interviewers are now allowed to define that. Mm -hmm. um, it's not that clear what, how you deal with that on, let's say, attitude questions, uh, uh, where you can have... Uh, no, uh, political questions, do you approve or disapprove of President Trump's job performance? And the respondents say, well, which aspect do you mean, right, or something like that? Right. You do not really want the interviewer to then specify something sure. that uh, is more specific than what the question. So as with every other controversial topic, you, you can see both sides of the argument. Um, but I, I'm inclined to agree with you that, you know, after doing what you can to not customize the survey question by adding more information, it, it can make sense at times to, to provide that clarity um, when, when needed. Absolutely. Uh, okay. So and I would, I, I would usually prefer it. Yes. So, so we covered a lot of ground. Um, was, was there anything else, Norbert, that we didn't talk about um, but should have? Anything I, I, I didn't ask you but you felt is an important um, No, I favor? think you... I think you touched on all the right things. Terrific. So, so if people want to learn more about questionnaire design, are there any other resources you might recommend? I mean, I would, as a first step, I would tell people to read your paper, um, again, which is titled Asking Questions About Behavior, Cognition, Communication, and Questionnaire Construction. Um, and you have, you know, all of your, uh, your references at the end of the paper, so people can certainly, you know, probe at that. But if, if someone was to read one book, um, what might you recommend? Uh, there or, is a or, book. Or have as a reference. Yeah, there is, I would recommend two books. Uh, the first book on that topic was a book that uh, Seymour Sutton, Norman Bradburn, and I uh, wrote. It's called Thinking About Answers. And uh, it's available in the Wiley series on survey methods now. Okay. Uh, thinking about answers is a non-technical introduction into cognitive psychology for survey researchers. Oh, brilliant. Uh, there is a later book uh, that is a much more technical and much more comprehensive uh, review of what has been learned uh, uh, about this, which is by Roger Tarancho and his colleagues, and that's called The Psychology of Survey Response. And that is a more comprehensive, uh, uh, detailed book. So if you're a doctoral student in cognitive psychology, that's your better book. If you're uh, a guy who writes marketing surveys, I think you should start with thinking about answers. 
by supplements by Bernard Schwartz. That's terrific. I hadn't heard of either of those books. Um, I have the book Asking Questions, which is it's very good. Asking, yes. Asking Questions was uh, uh, Norman Bradburn and Seymour Sutman, who are survey researchers. Initial book, which is a lot of practical wisdom about asking questions. Thinking about answers gives you the next step, which is a, a psychological analysis of what's going on there. And, and that is basically uh, alerting you to the principles rather than giving good examples. Yeah. If you are looking for good examples for questions, asking questions is your best step. Terrific. It has lots of good examples, but it doesn't do a lot on the point. Exactly. Thinking about answers tells you the principles, and the psychology of survey response gives you a full review of the problem. That's great. That, that's a good way of thinking of those. All right, so people will have a great library on questions if they if they have access to those three books. Um, and, and, and so now if people want to stay connected with you and, and some of the work that you're doing, um, and, and I'm you know, given what you're doing, I'm sure the research is, is fascinating and people would like to, um, to tap into it. Is there a, a way for people to do that? Is, is there an email address or a website that you might direct sure. them to? Yep. My email is just my name, Norbert, N-O-R-B-E-R-T dot Schwartz, S-E-H-W-A-R-Z. There's no T in the Schwartz. It's mm-hmm. the German spelling. At USC dot E-D-U. Or you can go to the website of the Mind and Society Center at the University of Southern California. Or you can simply Google me and you will find all of the above. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thanks, Norbert. Um, I, I know this was um, kind of an extended podcast, but a really, really important topic. And, uh, and I'm glad you know, we took the time to go through this. Uh, hopefully, people will go read your paper and or access those books um, because we're, you know, there's a lot of survey research being done out there and, and a lot of it um, not by those who are uh, aware of, of you know, the potential issues um, and, and so much business is riding on quality response. Uh, we, we, we hate for things to break down when, when they don't have to. Um, yeah. So it's been great speaking with you. Thanks for giving us the inside story of your work um, um, on, on, on asking questions about behavior. This, this has just been a great conversation. So thank you so much. Thank you very much, Phil. You're very welcome. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and I'd like to give a special thanks to Decision Breakers for making today's episode possible. We'll see you next time on Shoppernomics.